I'm Damien the DM from Adventures in Aurelia, a collaborative storytelling experience told through a game of Dungeons and Dragons, part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other epically geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Here we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Steven, Chris, and SP. Technically, it's April still, and this is the April edition of the official Gunna Geek show, also known as GG400! Yay! I'm Steven, and of course, we've got the full crew here today. It is Chris Farrell as well. I've been here for 467 episodes, and it feels like forever. And I also hear that you stayed around and, and manned the fort uh, the entire year we took a hiatus. So kudos to you. Uh, also, we have SP. I just want to point out that Chris was not actually making a funny. He does indeed have more episodes of the Guinea Geek show than Steven does. Yeah, we're here with 400. This is number 400 because, you know, we have other things to do. We're not making a big event about it. We might talk a little bit later about some of the, the past 400, but yes, we are here with a, a somewhat regular episode of 400 because, hey, if we can't be regular in our bathroom lives, we might as well be regular with our podcast. Speak for yourself, man. I like shredded mini wheats. This podcast needs more fiber at <laughs> SP Studio. <laughs> Hey, if you didn't know this, we talk about a bunch of geeky happenings, but when we're not recording the show, we hang out over in the Gunna Geek Discord, which can I say has the best geek community around. You want to check that out over at GunnaGeek.com slash Discord. I love our geek community over there. We have so much fun talk. We're going to talk a little later about Picard. We've had a lot of back and forth discussions about that. Even with the opposing views, I've enjoyed them just because we have so nice people over in the Gunna Geek Discord. So please check out the best geek community that exists over at gunnageek.com slash Discord. We'd love to have you there. Is that a forward slash or a backward slash? It's a whatever slash takes you into the Discord. <laughs> Look, if you want to know how civil our Discord is, is we talked about the sequel trilogy Star Wars movies, had very different opinions, and everyone was respectful. Not a single slur was thrown out towards anyone else for their opinion. Very few places on the internet does that happen. However, all four of my tires were slashed. Well, yeah, that's just because. <laughs> it had nothing to do with your opinion. I was just bored. So, <laughs> so let me get this straight. Are you saying that our community is friendly? Our community is very friendly. So it's a geek-friendly community. Nay, maybe the friendliest geek community? You know, I wouldn't want to get in any legal hot water because, you know, I, I, it sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen if, you know, we can't back up those claims. But I will say, I think it's a real contender. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> For anyone considering suing us, please consider the network runs at a loss. We're all volunteers and not paid. So don't sue. <laughs> don't oh, sue. But it's all in Steven's name. <laughs> so you get the Canadian dollars oh, if no. you do. Oh, no. All right. Let's uh, go Steven's to the news. Let's do the news. <laughs> All right, let's start off with some news here. This is the moment that SP has been alluding to since I think we returned 
officially from our hiatus back in September. Yes, SP is here with an actual launch of a ship that might go to the stars. Something like that. And to be clear, what I've been alluding to the entire time is the lunar landing right now scheduled for 2025. But I don't think it's going to happen in 2025. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What we're talking about here is Starship's launch. <laughs> That was good. I, I like that. Someone's got to clear. I was holding it together until Stephen went to the try and then I could see you guys. And I was like, nope, I'm done. I'm losing it. <laughs> so Starship, the biggest rocket on the planet, launched on April 20th, 2023. Yes, go ahead, guys. Make your jokes right now. It's 420. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Come on. I'm waiting for it. 420. I need to make the joke. The joke was they did it then, and it's like the mature joke of a 13-year-old, so why bother? We've been legal in Canada for a long time, so it would be like making a joke about uh, zero, zero, zero in honor of the the zero percent goodness that is Molson Canadian beer. Oh, that's true. It does taste like moose pee. <laughs> Okay, so Starship launched on 420. It was SpaceX's first integrated Starship vehicle lift off. It was the launch of the entire full stack, and it was long anticipated by many in the industry and just casual fans alike, but it was destroyed mere minutes later. Here's what went down. The Starship vehicle lifted off from SpaceX's Starbase site at Boca Chica, Texas. Boca Chica, Boca Chica, Boca Chica, Boca Chica. At 9.33 a.m. Eastern Time, that would be 8.33 a.m. Central Time, I was monitoring this launch live, but I was not, unfortunately, at Boca Chica, Texas, because the rest of my team was down in Florida for a Falcon Heavy launch. That didn't happen. It's going to happen this week. <sighs> I needed a minute to calm myself. Okay. Starship slowly lifted off from the pad and ascended reportedly at a reduced thrust. Now, I don't know what the reduced thrust was. I've heard something in the lines of 20% to 40%, something like that. I think that was to try to save the launch pad from damage. <laughs> We'll talk about that one later. Uh, it didn't work because it, what it happened. <laughs> no, it did not. It, it was on the pad for like seven full seconds with the thrust, whatever. Well, I think it was close to 40% thrust of 33 engines just blasting the launch pad without any flame diverters or water or any anything to douse the flames or redirect the thrust for so seven full seconds. Was, you're saying it might have been a bad idea to do it. <laughs> I think so. Everybody that I know, including myself, has either told Elon or has wished Elon wait until the flame diverter <laughs> was in place because he's got one that has been designed. It just hasn't been assembled and not put in place yet, but he wanted to go anyway. Reportedly, according to his own tweet, although I have not confirmed this with anybody in the company yet, that their calculations after the wet dress rehearsal were that it was going to be fine. It would survive oh, no. one launch. It certainly wasn't done to make a 420 joke. I mean, certainly not at all. That wouldn't be the reason. No. No. Couldn't no. be that. No. I'm, all right. I'm just jealous, though, because they had a problem that's the opposite of what I, I usually have a problem, which is going too long with the thrust. Uh, normally, I, I, I don't thrust enough. In this case, there was a length of thrust issue. We'll get to that in a second. 
it was on the pad for seven seconds and everybody around me at work was like, what are you doing? Because I kept on saying like, go, go, go. Like I was actually wishing it to lift off. And I was thinking my positive and energy was going to help it lift off the pad because it took forever. And I knew it was toasting the pad. More importantly, I didn't know if it was going to topple over and destroy itself and everything around. So I'm like, go, go, go. I just wanted it to get over the ocean at that point in time, get away from the launch site. And it might not have. So what happened was it was lifting off a little bit and then it slid and fortunately, it slid away from the launch tower. I don't know if that was the flight plan because they could have thrust vectored it off a little bit to make sure that it wouldn't be right next to the tower, torch the tower the way that Artemis 1 did over in uh, Florida for NASA. So it did a slide, and I thought it was going to slide and fall over, but then it started actually lifting off. I have no idea if they increased the thrust or whatever. I tend to think it's all automatic. So Starship had its program, and it was going off. It lifted off. I've seen pictures. There were 33 engines that were firing as it was lifting up off the pad. The webcast said three engines went out shortly thereafter or during liftoff. So right away, it's without three engines. It can take off and reach orbit without six engines. So it was still good. We knew it was going to have to thrust longer, but we didn't know exactly what was going on. And at the time, I didn't pay attention to the plume around the pad. We'll get to that in a second. Starship did survive Max-Q, which is the point in flight where the rocket experiences the most aerodynamic pressure from the atmosphere as it speeds up. So the faster it goes, the more atmospheric pressure it has on the rocket itself. And at some point, you go fast enough and you climb high enough that that pressure reduces. But until you get there, it increases until you get to Max-Q which is the maximum aerodynamic pressure, and then it goes away. So it did survive that. That was an important data point. And I got to tell you guys, everybody that I talk to that's a rocket scientist or a structural engineer, they are impressed that this thing held together. And I'll tell you why in a second too. Okay, so it's going up. The data displayed at T plus 15 seconds, which is about eight seconds after it cleared the tower, that two Raptor engines were out or three Raptor engines were out, two in a fixed outer ring and one in the center section. They were capable of gimbling, but they were not working. Now, a third engine in the outer ring shut down at T plus 40 seconds, followed by another 20 seconds later, so one minute into flight. By T plus 100 seconds or one minute 40 seconds, six engines were not responding, although one was restored a few seconds later. There was imagery both static imagery and video imagery that showed all six engines no longer had nozzles. So I don't know how Jeez. they got the one operating left, but six were without nozzles, which means the nozzles were gone. I have no idea where they went. I haven't seen anything, but I know they were not on the rocket. It was supposed to have main engine cutoff, also known as Miko, at T plus two minutes and 49 seconds followed a few seconds later by the separation of the upper stage, which is about 50 meters tall or 165 feet tall, and ignition of its six Raptor engines. That never happened. What happened is the stack with the Starship and the Super Heavy tumbled, and it started to do loops, and it started to do spins. And then finally, the flight termination system kicked in, and it was exploded. 
I think I know why separation did not occur. We'll get into that in a second. I keep on saying we'll get into that in a second. I think it all goes back to one specific thing. So the flight was terminated at four minutes. The vehicle broke apart or was exploded. If you've seen the video, it was spectacular explosion. People all over Texas reportedly heard the boom. And then all over the local area, they saw remnants of the explosion and the launch with like sand that was kicked up in the atmosphere and stuff. Uh, There's lots of video or pictures of people with like the sand and, and this green glass that is on their porches, whatever, that was just kicked up into the atmosphere. SpaceX said the vehicle reached an altitude of 39 kilometers, which is about 24 miles. It had a goal of 145 miles up before the engine failures and it was destroyed. Now, post-flight, and I'll admit, I I was not paying attention to this during the flight. I should have been, and I will from now on. Many replays noted huge flying concrete debris from the orbital launch mount, just pummeling surrounding launch infrastructure, structures, and remote cameras, and the rocket itself. Let me say that again, and the rocket itself. There is tremendous video, just this great video of the NASA space flight, which has nothing to do with NASA. It's a private entity. We talked about them before. The van cam was just smacked by a large piece of concrete. And I'm surprised the van is still standing, to be honest with you, because that back section is just dented in. But the van, they drove the van away. That was the one that had the big piece of concrete through the back and go go through through the side or whatever, right? Is that the yeah, one? Just, yeah. Yeah. The entire back was pummeled. But a minivan, if it's front-wheel drive, it can drive away with massive damage to the back. And that's what happened in this case. It would have been oh, worse. I, f- I forgot. You, you have a son that's now in his adulthood. He's been through the phase where he's destroyed your minivan. You know from experience. Yeah, I've, n- I've been. Okay, not the minivan. But there's been other cars that have had. Yeah, and it's not just my son. All three kids destroyed cars. Couple, yeah, total. Man, your car insurance bill must have sucked. It went up until they got off of it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So the exploding and flying concrete may have proven to be Starship's ultimate undoing since both the rocket engine and the stage separation were hydraulically powered. And there is video, if you watch the flight, depicting at least one of the HPUs or hydraulic power units exploding in flight. I don't know if you guys have seen that or not, but there is a clear detonation on the lower side of the rocket. Yeah, that was one of the HPUs. So when you no longer have an HPU, you no longer have hydraulic control of your engine vectoring, your vector thrust. And then, yeah, the rocket starts to tumble because you can't steer it anymore. Rockets, you don't steer with flaps. You steer with the actual thrust. And when the engines can't move anymore, you're not doing anything with the rocket. Dust and debris from the launch was sent flying sometimes for miles. One resident of Port Isabel, Texas, six miles to the north of Starbase, called the noise and debris created by the launch truly terrifying. I think this person has never been around a launch before in their lives, but okay. (laughs) Other Port Isabel residents reported broken windows, and some described it as like a mini earthquake. I can see the explosion being like that. It was one of the biggest explosions. I mean, it set off weather Doppler radar too. So yeah. 
NPR photojournalist Pablo De La Rosa also posted reports of particles from Starship's launch raining down on residents. According to a City of Port Isabel Facebook post, it has been confirmed that the spray of Starship debris that covered locals' cars and homes posed no health risk and was in fact sand and dust lofted airborne and thrown miles in every direction by the rocket's liftoff. Now, if only the United States train system could get a journalist to say the same thing about hazardous chemical spills, I think everything would be right in the world. In other words, I don't believe that it's truly no health risk, but it's probably no health risk. Now, let's get to stage zero or the infrastructure. It was damaged. If you've seen pictures, Hopper's skin was peeled off. If you don't know what Hopper was or is, it was SpaceX's first rocket that went up, translated over, and went back down. It looks like a flying R2-D2 can, and it was heavily damaged. The stainless steel on the outside was peeled back like an onion and uh, I hope they fix it because it's been through a lot of a lot in its life and it's a great historical thing to have around so I hope they go ahead and fix it even though it's it's you know it's going to cost them some money to do it but I hope they do also the adjacent fuel tank farm was dented and hit of note it wasn't the actual tanks themselves that you're seeing it's an outer shell to protect the tanks and to add an additional installation area, uh, installation, the, the insulation, not installation, insulation to keep, help keep the tanks cool. And they were dented, but one of them resulted in venting. So we're not quite sure what that venting was. Maybe there was some condensation on the inside that had to get out that was under pressure. Maybe it was the tank itself. I don't know yet. SpaceX has not yet, as of this recording, published a, an official damage report of everything. And to be honest, I don't think they know because they did have venting going on and they needed to fully vent some of the tank farm to make it safe for personnel to return to the site. So it took like three days. So you had all these photojournalists with these remote cameras just strewn over everywhere. Nobody thought that this was going to be as damaging as it was. And whether it was the rocket's blast itself or the flying debris that took out remote cameras and vans and stuff, they were just decimated. Many, many, many photojournalists have lost their remote camera rigs to this. There are a lot of pleas online for uh, funds for, you know, buy my pictures, buy my frames, or uh, contribute to my fund, whatever, for these cameras. Uh, if you so desire, you know, pick and choose the ones that you like, but uh, there were lots, hundreds, I would at least dozens, if not hundreds of cameras that were ruined. Uh, there was not a huge trench underneath the orbital launch mount before the launch. Matter of fact, it was a nice flat concrete pad. <laughs> now there's this, just a huge swimming pool and this trench. So they don't need to guess which way the flame's going to divert. They already right. have the trench to say, okay, flame's going this way so they can help the diversion there. But I don't know. It looks like the pillars to the OLM are fine, but everything around the pillars is suspect. They might have to replace the whole thing. I don't know. What's in the future here? SpaceX does have plenty of ships and boosters ready to test. And even though I shudder to think about this at this point in time, they do have a second launch site in Florida. They 
could ship these over there and <sighs> use it over there. I hate to say that because of all the damage that occurred this time. And if they did that and it damaged some things in Florida, it would be more than their launch site. It would be other launch sites around them as well. As a result of this damage and the explosion itself, is the FAA going to allow another test in the short term? That was my question I think, too. I think if they go ahead and use the flame diverter or some sort of mitigation procedure this next time that yes i think the faa okay. will go because let's not forget you need to have starship to land on the moon at this point in time if starship continues to have these faults as it goes along other people can develop landers that might be used instead much like blue origin but blue origin is years behind schedule their rocket to launch their system hasn't even been made yet they haven't tested anything about it. They're just doing the launch pad 36 at Cape Canaveral is theirs. They have been creating it. They have been creating a construction site there, but they've got nothing to test so far. So I don't know. I think the FAA will go ahead and it's not like a death mark. I mean, this was meant to be an iterative development process anyway, and they didn't kill anybody. Uh, they took safety protocols. So as long as they fix stuff and say, hey, this won't happen again because of this. Yeah, I can see them going. The other option is to repair their existing launch site at Boca Chica. Now, Elon said, it'll be fine. One or two months, we will launch. Now, <laughs> interestingly enough, we have uncovered what is known as Elon time. Somebody did a statistical analysis of all of Elon's predictions when it comes to SpaceX. And it turns out that whatever he says, you have to multiply it by a factor of four, much like Scotty with the Enterprise, but in reverse, where Scotty would say, oh, it'll be eight months. And really, he'd be able to do it in one or two months. Elon is like, hey, it'll be one or two months. And then it's eight months. So that's what I'm thinking we're at time-wise, somewhere between six and 12 months, probably closer to eight months, because first they have to analyze what happened. Second, they have to rebuild everything and design the flame uh, diverter or whatever they're going to do to mitigate the thrust. Because this is the biggest rocket that the Earth has ever seen. Literally, it had more thrust than the, N the Soviet Union N1. So they're going to need to do something's different here and we'll see. And as far as the thrust vectoring, they were already designing boosters not to use the hydraulic power actuation with the nozzles. The future boosters are all going to have electric. So we don't have to worry about HPUs exploding in the future. Now, hopefully we won't have to worry about the freaking rocket getting pelted by concrete, which it throws up itself. But also, you don't have to worry about the HPUs or the nozzles flying, falling off. I saw that and somebody said, hey, the, there's no nozzles here. So I'm like, yeah, you're right. There's no nozzles there. Like, yeah, you totally lost the rocket engines. I don't know if they were pelted off or they fell off or whatever. I, I tend to think concrete took them out. I tend to think that's what no. that seems to be the safest assessment. I mean, maybe I'll make it too blunt, but I'll steal a quote from Picard season one and censor myself. Sheer blanking hubris. That, that's why what happened happened. You I, know, had they put the diverter on there and not made a 420 joke, <laughs> I would be looking at different results and potentially more helpful results because we would have gotten further along because we wouldn't have blown up half the rocket. That's an over-exaggeration. Blown up the rocket with concrete of our own mistake. I actually know what happened to them. Um, 
you know how sometimes you got a, a, a big band, like big rock band, and they are on stage and they've got those huge walls of speakers. Well, anyone in the business knows that half of those are actually just shells. They're just fake. So that's all they did was they just had, you know, some some fake uh, nozzles on the bottom there for show before they launched. And then they just kind of melted away. That's all that happened. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I think that there was a drive from Elon to do 420 for a lot of reasons. It should have been the day before, but the weather wasn't good enough to go the day before. So they had to wait until 420. That said, they shouldn't have gone on 420 or anywhere near it. They should have waited for the flame diverter. Absolutely. And then also, I've seen some, what I will say, bootleg, because I don't think they were official, views of Starship itself and the tiles. It was missing a lot of tiles. And I don't know if the tiles were shaken off during liftoff or if debris got them, but there were several. I don't think Starship, basically is what I'm saying, would have survived entry, re-entry as it was designed to, which is okay because it they were okay losing it. Mm. So that's why they exploded it. I don't think there right. was any payload in there and it was all a test uh, system anyway. And they've already tested Starship. They know that once it gets down, they can land it. So they just I mean, have to get it up and down. We saw with it. the space shuttles themselves that if one of those heat tiles fails, it can cause problems because it was the foam insulation that took out the the heat tile on what the wing of, uh, was that Endeavor? I think it was, or was that Columbia that then was a problem when it came to It was Columbia. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that, that was what was shocking to me when I saw some of those same bootleg images you're talking about. Ironically enough, I saw them on Twitter. <laughs> you guys can figure out why that's ironic in and of itself, but... I looked at that and went, oh, man, I hope that those fell off because of the concrete. They exploded beneath themselves while doing it and not for some other reason. But the folks that are going to be doing the investigation, I think, are in for some fun because there's a whole bunch of additional variables added into play with exploding concrete. Yeah, let's talk about exploding concrete for a second because you may not know how this happened. So they just poured the bottom not too long ago, maybe a month ago or so. They redid the bottom uh, following the wet dress rehearsal. It does take concrete some time to cure, which means the center was still kind of wet. And if you expose the center of a huge concrete structure that is wet to a lot of heat and pressure, it's going to explode. So we're pretty sure that's what happened here. Right. Well, we look forward to the future reporting of the concrete explosions from USP. Oh, I might have to do a few tests myself to see Ooh. concrete explode. <laughs> Make sure you put those videos up online so that we can. I will. Observe. You know, my driveway needs to be re-poured. So when it, that happens, I'll expose it to a tremendous amount of heat and pressure and see if it can explode and take out my house in the process. Bonus points if you can find a way to make a rocket drop on Steven's house as part of all Oh, this. well, yes. that's the next test. Perfect. There you go. That's the goal here. All right, so Chris, there's two things in life that I know that you really appreciate. The one oh, no. is your pixel, and the other is folding. So these two things coming together are just... Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> Good thing my wife doesn't watch this show. <laughs> uh, these two things together are just a match made in heaven for you, aren't they, Chris? Well, they are. And if you've been over at our Discord, go to geek.com slash Discord, you've seen me kind of needling steven a little bit as we get more and more tech leaks about the upcoming pixel fold being made by google pretty much every time i find a new article i either send it to him on our chat or i send it to him and tag him in our discord channel because 
both Steve and I have been a little fascinated to see what the Google competition looks like when it comes to the Pixel Fold device. And much like the last gen of Pixel phones, the leakers have pretty much leaked everything of significance in regards to this upcoming device. So let's talk about what rumors we've gotten about Google's first entry into the foldable phone competition. A lot of what I found for you has been compiled by a site called GSM Arena. And then I took some notes based off that and off of a few other sites. And God, I hope he folds his phone right now. For those on uh, listening on audio, Stephen was picking up his phone and starting to bend it. I wanted to make sure everybody my, knew. My Pixel phone. His Pixel phone. That is correct. Because we are Pixel buddies or Pixel pals, whichever you want to go with. <laughs> so there's been a wide leak of a bunch of Google internal documents and images. We're going to talk about the Google Pixel Fold, which is what this device is being called. You may have heard its code name in the past is Passport. Why Passport? Because it folds up like a passport does. Google's literature internally claims this to be the most durable hinge on a foldable, which sounds like marketing conversation and stuff like that to me. But I've seen other leakers describe it as similar to the hinge on the foldable Oppo device, which people have gone and tested and said it's a pretty good hinge. It does a good job of keeping the screen from creasing, keeping the screen protected and being water safe. I believe it's Mr. Mobile on YouTube who has a really good breakdown of the Opal foldables devices. He's gotten to play with them a lot. However, let's go back to the Pixel Fold. It's like I said, the most durable hinge on a foldable, as they say, but they're also saying it is water resistant. Nothing in the leaks about what standard that it adheres to. You can always hear about like mil spec standard 810F and things like that whenever it comes to water and moisture repellents. We don't know that about the Pixel Fold yet. The outer screen on it will be 5.8 inches diagonally across, while the inner one will open up to 7.6 inches when opened up. So it is a rather rather healthy-sized display on both sides, which kind of gets around some of the criticism folks had had around the Samsung Galaxy Fold, which is that the front screen's dimensions were inconvenient, I guess might be the best way to put it, for most apps, so they were almost always having to open up to play in foldable mode to make things fit the screen properly. I think Google's intent is to try and make it so that you can navigate your phone and do simple things with the regular size front screen because it's in a dimension that things are used to. Continuing with the leak, this device will allegedly weigh 10 ounces. That's 283 grams. will have a larger battery than Samsung's Galaxy Z Fold 4 and be heavier than that device. In marketing materials that were leaked, it claims to have a 24 or up to 74 hours in low power mode battery life. Documents further confirm the Pixel Fold is powered by the Tensor G2 chipset. Why do I want to bring that up? Because the G2 chipset is the current line of Google processors. We're rumored to be getting the G3 processor when they announced the Pixel 8 and Pixel 8 Pro devices later this year. So that is one limitation if you are concerned the Pixel Fold is it is not going to be the cutting edge current gen processor. You're going to be a generation back. That said, going between, say, Tensor G1 and G2, there's not much difference. So I'm not sure there's going to be a huge difference between G2 and G3. So it may not make much difference, but that's something we'll have to find out once more of the Pixel 8 leaks to everyone else. Now, we talked a lot about capabilities, dimensions, things like that. What's really going to drive people to decide whether they're going to make the leap into a foldable is pricing. And rumors have been all over the map on pricing. The first rumors I saw back two, three, maybe even four months ago said that Google was planning to try and undercut their competitors like Samsung and their Galaxy Fold devices. The rumored prices I had seen then for the entry-level Galaxy, or excuse me, Pixel Fold was somewhere between $12 to $1,400, which is a fair bit cheaper 
than what you would see from an equivalent Google, excuse me, Samsung Galaxy Fold. All these names just keep blurring together. I apologize, everyone. However, we do have updated pricing rumors that came out with this most recent leak. They claim it will cost upward of $1,700, which lines up with a leak that had come just before that saying $1,799. But to sweeten that deal, Google is reportedly going to offer a free Pixel Watch to Pixel Fold buyers in addition to trade-in options. Pixel Watch is overpriced for what it is, but I guess if you can get one free, that makes it a bit more palatable if you're deciding to upgrade. So we've gotten some basics. We know some of the internals of it. We know the screen sizes. The real question left is, well, do we know when this device is coming out and or being announced? Well, assuming the leaks are correct, yeah, we do, because almost everything leaked. It's supposed to be fully unveiled during the Google I.O. developer conference coming up on May 10th, so we're a few weeks out from that. And supposedly pre-orders will go live in or around that time, and it will be widely available for purchase on June 27th. So that means you can get it on the Google Store. You'll probably be able to get it in some places like Best Buy and other big box stores. The real question is, is this going to make an Android user want to make the leap that hasn't already? And I will say personally, I've kind of been considering it, but my consideration was more in play when they were talking about doing the $1,200 to $1,400 price point. For $1,800, this is still a novel concept, but it's a Gen 1 Google product. And I'm kind of going, yeah, I think I'm just going to, I think I'm just going to wait and see how this all shakes out. I'm not sure that I'm ready to jump on this yet. Now, maybe reviews come out and I change my mind. The nice advantage I have right now is I'm on the uh, Pixel Plus, Pixel Wow, that's a tongue twister. Pixel Plus plan or whatnot. So I basically pay month to month and bundle with a bunch of other Google services, which I'm sure they will offer for the Pixel Fold. But my subscription runs until November or October. I can't remember. So I'm not really in line to upgrade yet. So I'll be able to take advantage of hearing what reviewers say and then seeing if there's any kind of price drops around Black Friday, things like that, and then pick that up for my Pixel plan. So who knows what's going to happen? Steven, the real question is, are you making the leap? Are you going to fold your Pixel? Well, some of us aren't fortunate enough to have, like you, a PP plan. Uh, so we can, we, we might have to be looking at paying outright. Wait, he said his Pixel Plus plan. You're shaking your head, SP. He, he said his Pixel Plus plan. So it's his PP plan. Or they might just be Pixel Pass. I probably screwed it up right there. So if I screwed it up, uh, send me a tweet. And let me know. I think it's not Pixel making it pass. any better. <laughs> SP, don't judge my PP plan. Jeez, it's just a PP plan. Everyone, calm down. We're all mature, grown adults. We can talk about PP all the time. So here, just as a recap, you're saying the the rumor price is about eighteen hundred dollars. Mark a dollars. That is Marking. at the moment. Converted $2,435.82 Canadian dollars under current exchange rate. So barring the universe imploding on itself and the Canadian dollar being worth significantly more than the U.S. dollar, I am out. Uh, I have a lot better things to do with $2,400. So follow up then. If they had gone with the original rumored price somewhere between twelve dollars to $1,400 American, would that have made any difference in your decision making? It may have, yes. And why I say that is because I've been seriously, semi-seriously over the last few months thinking about what my next phone's upgrade is going to be next year. And it might not be a Pixel for a couple of reasons. I'm overall okay with the Pixel. There's just a couple other things, variables making me thinking 
maybe jumping into Samsung side of thing or, you know, depending on on how it would go with the iPhone side of things. That's like a that that's all. OK, we'll, we'll pretend I never even said that. But those are more in that price range. So I've already decided that in that price range, if you go with a larger phone, I'm open to that idea. That's why I say not for sure, because a lot of times I look at it and I look at these other phones and I go, Okay, so I'm going to spend that type of money or I could just be happy with something like the Pixel 7 Pro and pay a lot less. And generally, I lean that way, but I haven't totally discounted things like the S23 Plus or, uh, a, you know, middle tier Pixel or a middle tier iPhone. So that's in that price range at 1800. That's way above that what I would right. be looking at. So I think your thinking is similar to mine, which is if they were really undercutting the price, it's worth thinking about because of a perceived discount that we're getting. It's, oh, this isn't so bad for me to test out this foldable device. But if it's basically in line with the competitor prices, at least for me, it becomes more a matter of, yeah, I'm not going to be the one jumping on that first. I want to see the reviews. And then even then, it's still probably cost prohibitive because you don't really need it. We've talked about it on this show many times before. We're not really at a point anymore with the way flagship phones are that you need a flagship phone. You can get the the midline, let's do a pixel comparison, the 7A or the mm -hmm. 6A pixels, and you can do 95% of everything you would want to do, arguably with better battery life because the processor is less powerful. And that's exactly where my mind keeps going whenever I think about my next upgrade path is, is if they come out with a phone that's less expensive, that's missing a couple things. Could I do it? And and I'm, I think depending on what it is, I probably could. And I say that because I used to own a Pixel 4a, which was the discounted phone. And I was happy with some of the concessions I made for the lower price tag. So when you're up in the $1,800 range, that's that's way above everything else. But there's a second factor of it, which is the hardware being past generation. And they're like, hey, we're going to throw in a Pixel watch. Well, the Pixel watch, I know there's a lot of fanfare. I think it's a bust. I think as far as overall the features it offers, for compared to things like the Galaxy Watch, you know, the price point compared to the Galaxy Watch. I think that it, it's it didn't do what it should have done. And I think that without a new version that that does really bite at the Galaxy Watch's heels, I think we'll see it fade away. And I'm afraid that that the Pixel Fold trying to entice people by having the Pixel Watch, I don't know that that is a good marketing plan. So you want my cynical take as to why a Pixel Watch is potentially coming with the Fold? Because to... they, they have way too many and they need to get rid of them. Exactly. They're trying <laughs> to get rid of backstock. So how do they get rid of backstock? They make a bundle with that included. And it's, oh, look, we're going to give you this $300 device that when you start looking at the parts breakdown and stuff like that, not worth $300. If you paid that, that's fine. I hope you're happy with it. But you go and look at the price breakdown, especially the parts that are inside, and you go, Oh, wow. This is a lot of older tech. Yeah. It's it's a first gen Google product, which means you have to wait until gen two or gen three oftentimes for it to get refined to where it should be, assuming they continue. And that's also my concern with the foldable is it's a first gen Google product. That being said, I think we've all seen that the writing is on the wall, that people are getting more and more interested in foldables. So I think that Google has to have at least some kind of presence there. Considering we've also heard the leaks that Apple's looking into foldables also. Whether whether you want one yourself personally, the writing is on the wall that people are interested in them and it becomes an interesting new form factor to play with. So let me ask you this, SP. Is this going to win you over to the Pixel? <laughs> <laughs> Can't even say that without laughing. Can't even finish it. I don't know. Maybe 
Probably not, but not for the reasons that you think. First of all, I want to say that I'm encouraged by this and I'm really looking forward to what mobile devices, I won't even call them phones, mobile devices are going to look 10 years from now, maybe 20 years from now. And at some point, it'll be my last phone that I ever have because I'm just, I'm getting older guys. But 10 years from now, I'm really looking forward to what phones are going to look like because if they're doing this with a foldable phone now, 10 years from now, it's going to be something more amazing. If you look at what the new iPhone was in 2013, it was the iPhone 5. The iPhone 5 was the same as the 4, which was kind of the remake of the iPhone, the iPhone 4, the iPhone 4S. iPhone 5 was just a stretched version. And it started the bigger phone craze that we have here today, at least in the iPhone market. Yes, I know that there was like the notes out there at the same time, which were bigger phablets. Phablet was a term that was just coming into being back then. Foldables have been around for a few years. This is not the first foldable, but 10 years from now, I just can't imagine what they're going to be like, whether they're foldable or rollable screens or, you know, whatever they are, 10 years from now is going to be kind of cool. The other comment I have to this is on the pricing. We're talking flagship phones. There's been a lot of rumors around the iPhones, which kind of pace everything else in the industry, unfortunately. And there was a rumor that the next generation of iPhones, like we're on the iPhone 14 right now. I think I have an iPhone 14 Pro. So the 15 or the 16 will start to diverge the higher end where you would have like a pro model, but then you would have an ultra model that's even better than that, which will have all the new widgets on it, maybe foldable screen. I don't know what's going to be on the ultra. Maybe it'll be just a bigger screen than what the max is right now. And then you have the max and then you have the original line and this will drive the price structure up, right? So what I'm concerned about right now is the iPhone 14 Max was about, with one terabyte of storage, was around $1,700. And if this foldable is coming in at $1,700, but really should be priced more along the lines of $1,200 or $1,400, since it's a year-old uh, processor tech and stuff like that, that just means the next generation iPhone is going to be more expensive. And things are going to get to the point where you're not going to be able to afford a new phone with every, every generation, you, I will argue that people already cannot, and you're at no, three, fair. four, yeah. or five generations now before getting a new phone. And that's not that big of a deal when you consider that the capabilities don't increase all that much. So you're not really gaining anything, maybe just a new battery that lasts longer. But you're just going to have to hang on to your phone for a few years before you get a new one. So my concern over this is more pricing and what things are going to look like 10 years from now and the availability for everybody rather than the actual fold itself. I think the fold itself will work through its paces. If Google keeps on to it, they'll make even better ones as things progress. And I wouldn't be interested in getting it because it's the first generation. I'll consider it a second or third generation, but not the first generation. But uh, I'm never going to say never. I have had Android phones in the past. And I think I will in the future. But for right now, as we discussed before, I'm on the iOS family yeah. issue. So got to stay with iOS for now. Your pricing concern is legitimate. And we have seen a lot of creep up, especially even when it comes to the unlocked phone side of the house. But when it comes to those flagship phones, Samsung, Apple, Google, they're all offering their own payment plans. You can get through those companies direct. You can stick it directly onto your Apple card if you have an Apple card. 
and just pay your phone off month per month there. You've got the Pixel plan. All the cell phone providers now will basically say, hey, we'll give you a free phone, but that's split up over, say, 24 months worth of payment or bill credits and stuff like that. So that's the new shape of things right now is I think retailers have realized those prices are high. So they lock you in with one of those plans to keep you there. And I fully admit I'm signed up for one of those because it made sense for me cost wise on my uh, Pixel 6 Pro. And I could have paid it all off that same day. But I said, why bother? Because I can just lock in, get these other features. And then if I want out early, pay out early. But this is where I'm coming from a position of privilege. I'm at a point where I can do that because I have my wife and I, that's what I have to take care of phones for. It's not like my wife, myself, three kids, other stuff like that. We've only got our two phones to worry about, which is where they sort of start to get you with those payment plans, which is, well, I might be able to stretch a bit more life out of this if I get the newer model or the newest model and put it on the payment plan. And then maybe I'll get a year past that. That's where we are now. The one thing I will say about payment plans, I know Stephen has already dealt with this, but they have now increased with the higher price flagship phones. They have now increased the plans from 24 months to 36 months. Yep. And I know, Stephen, you've been there for a few years. That's new in the United States for the last couple of years. They've increased it from two years to three years. We actually went away from them. <laughs> I'm hoping da- that we do, too. We, we did it back on the two years we, now? Uh, we used to three year used to be common in Canada. And then a while back, there was some government regulation that made them switch them to two. And and um, I think there are there might be a couple options now for the three year, but overall they're still based on two year. So, okay. So, uh, two things. Number one, I have my foldable phone already and, uh, it looks like this and it folds. It is a, uh, a, a Star Trek communicator. That's what it is. It makes different noises and that's all I need for foldable. Steven Paramount's going to sue us now. (laughs) Uh, Number two, I want to keep talking Star Trek. So I'm just going to quickly acknowledge my news point, which was, hey, if you use Google for your one time passwords, you know, the Google Authenticator app, they're actually putting in a feature where you can back those up now. Take a look into it because this is a huge problem that people have when they all of a sudden damage their phone or something like that. And now they've lost their app. Take a look into it. Google is is adding that feature. It's going to be important to for backup, but also syncability between multiple devices. So check that out. We don't need to talk anymore about that because I want to talk Picard and let's get into that right now. For those of you who didn't realize, last time that we did an episode of the Guinea Geek Show, we talked about our first thoughts about the first couple episodes of Star Trek Picard Season 3. Well, the season is now done. It was a 10-episode season, and that means that the series is done as well because Picard Season 3 was the final series of Star Trek. Season 3 really took a bit of a left turn compared to Seasons 1 and 2, where it did decide that it was going to mostly... Uh, be a bit of a, a reclosure towards TNG, and that was that was uh, uh, obvious <laughs> throughout it. So I wanted to take the time to talk a little bit about our overall thoughts with it, what we thought some of the highlights were, some of the lowlights, where we think it sits as far as Star Trek or within Picard goes. Uh, let's start off with USP. SP, you have I know you've been itching to talk about Star Trek Picard for a very long time. You haven't had an outlet, so let's start with you. No outlet whatsoever. 
For those that don't know the inside joke there, I was brought on board to guest host a Star Trek podcast for the duration of Picard season three. So I've had 10 episodes to talk about it. Okay, what did I think of the season overall? It was fan service and nostalgia. If you go into that with that expectation, you are going to love it. If you have any other expectation whatsoever, you are not going to adore it. So just fair warning, don't think it's going to be the best thing ever because while it's good track, it is not the best TV ever. It, it's good. It's just not the best. What was my number one highlight? Are, are we spoiling things here? Are we assuming that the audience has heard everything at this point? Yeah, Brian? we're going to go ahead and say, if you haven't watched Star Trek Picard, we're going to talk full on details right now from Star Trek Picard. So prepare to be spoiled. All right. My number one highlight was the episode with Ro Laren. Mm. That was by far leaps and bounds above any other episode in this whole series, this 10 episodes. It was a surprise to see her. I should have seen it coming. I didn't take a look at the casting for her at all for Michelle Forbes to come on board. She came on board. The writing was spectacular for it. It was well done. It wasn't too over the top nostalgic. And there was real sacrifice, but I'm learning that in Trek, there is no real sacrifice anymore. So, okay, I, I get that. But as for me, that was definitely the highlight of the season. What was the low light? I will say episode two was the low light mm. for a lot of reasons. I don't think episode two needed to be there. I think having episode two took away from other things that could have happened in episode seven, eight, nine to make the ending even better. And the first four episodes, I've heard a lot of people say that they could have combined into three or two. I'm more in the two camp than the three camp. And I think that took away from the ending when in retrospect, when you take a look at everything, I think that took away from it. So that's my low light. And I specifically will target the second episode because that was my least favorite episode out of all of them. And I kept track throughout the season because I was podcasting on it. As far as my thoughts on the Enterprise G, so many thoughts, so many thoughts. It was good to see yet another version of the Enterprise G on the screen. The Enterprise for the fandom means a lot. I am not in the camp where I need to see an Enterprise in the Star Trek universe anymore. I think that uh, renaming it took away, and, and I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, but I, I think it took away from some of the Rikers crew's legacy with the Titan. And Yeah, and I didn't like Terry Madelas's answer that he gave in a couple interviews, which is, doesn't mean there won't be a Titan B. And I was like, but you had a Titan A, and you it took was right its name. There. It you right took there. its name to make an enterprise and you can head Canada away as Starfleet probably needed a win, which is, Hey, we had to decommission the F what's a good way to bump up morale, put another enterprise out there. Cause everybody loves them. That's Did they my really need to decommission the F? I mean, so, we only saw it the once. If you look into the supplemental material that is Canon, it was involved in some kind of mission that basically wrecked all of the internals on it. It was basically held together for frontier day to basically be retired after that is what came out of it. So they killed off the E, the F, and brought us the G in a short span of time. So as a fan that didn't know anything about that, I, I, I didn't get any of that, and it was lost on me, and it still has me questioning why. On screen, it's like you didn't take the time to fully develop it. So, so you want my personal opinion as to why? 
because the current showrunner, which has done a good job on things, wants to get back to the exploration science era of Trek by putting the Enterprise as a Neo-Constitution class again, which takes us back to Kirk's Enterprise, exploration, the original Constitution class, and that's why it got changed and moved away from where we had been with the DENF, which was the flagship of the Federation. It was arguably one of the most technologically advanced and powerful ships that was out there. I have another thought on the Enterprise G, but I think it's the thought that Steven's going to talk about. So I'm going to let him talk about that. And I actually agree with him on a lot of those points. <laughs> so I'll leave that for Steven there. Also, the writing in the season overall, I have issues with stuff that was brought up and never returned to. The whole Laris thing that she was just basically hot dropped in the first episode and never returned to. There should have been some mention on what happened with Laris later on, and there never was. So I have an issue with that. I also have an issue with some of the other plot points along the way that were never really returned to, one of which was Dr. Crusher finding a way to track changelings and even though they kind of closed that loop it was just a loop like it had nothing to do with the plot whatsoever so why did you bring it up to begin with so there were a lot of examples of that but those are just two that i'm just going to throw out right there i agree with you on that because you're right at the, at the final dialogue they talk about uh how how she finds a way to screen for changelings and they show a scene the way that that the voiceover is worded it's something to the effect of she's discovered a way to which is like you were right there. You could have said you could have said something like based on the discovery, like based on her, her prior discovery or something. You could have just tweaked that and, okay. and officially closed that loop. 100% agree with you. It's trick. They always randomly science the expletive out of how to do things. But, but they, they, they literally didn't. set it up. They're like, OK, here is your plate of apples. Now we're going to give you some oranges. <laughs> I didn't have an issue with it. I took it. It was implied that, hey, as part of undoing what the changelings did to the humans, that's how she was able to detect the cha the uh, changelings. It was I some process involved with that. That was how I took it. Now, maybe it's just me kind of glossing over it. I realize in retrospect, and this was never described really beforehand, but Terry Metalis and his Ask Me Anything on Reddit mentioned that they were thinking of a lot of the things that the fans were thinking of, but they didn't have the time or the money to pull it off. Oh, sure. They Pop didn't out. have the time. Yes, that's fine. They didn't have the time to bring or the money to bring Guinan in. They didn't have the time or the money to bring Sela in. They didn't have time or money to worry about Thomas Riker, which, yes, I know, guys, I know. It's not that big of a deal, but it's still a dangling plot thread in the TNG timeline. If you're trying to tie those all up, including the TNG crew, I think Thomas Riker deserves a point in that, even though the last time we saw him was in DS9. Yeah, he so, was in jail he was jailed by the cardassians in, yeah, in, I, I i'm 100 with you on that in the discussions up to the point that rolaren comes back and the fact that rolaren comes back i think now we have to relook at look at everything with that so I, they I was, can't bring everyone back is the problem uh, uh, and terry even terry right, even talked but, about it in his ama he wanted to bring certain people back and they didn't have the time and money for it because it came down to do we build the enterprise d bridge or do we bring people back because he talked about he wanted to have a cut scene that showed that Roe wasn't actually dead. She was captured and being held in a cell with Tuvok and other replaced Starfleet members. So the implication there was is that Roe might still be alive. We don't actually know. 
watch Star Trek Legacy if they make it. <laughs> and it sucks that we had to make those choices or somebody had to make those choices because if they're going to do this, they should have done it right. They should have slipped them a little bit more money. But heck, I don't know. Maybe they gave them every single penny that Paramount had to spare. I, I don't know. They, they've got to make money doing these, though, too. So it's we can look at it from a fan perspective and say, oh, my God, they should have let them do that. But then you also have to look at the bean counter perspective, which is, OK, we can do that. And it's going to get a bunch of fan buzz. But now we didn't make any money on episode nine or whatever, because not enough people were subscribed to watch it. So that's and the cruel did. reality of TV yeah. is they stretched that budget as best they could. They did some weird, crazy stuff. And part of me thinks that's part of the reason why the Enterprise G is the Titan A, because they could then reuse that bridge if they got their spinoff sequel. <laughs> yeah. And there's no parks like Disney with Star Wars and Marvel. There's parks that they can go to, right, to reclaim some of that money after the fact. There's no parks with Star Trek of go to. I mean, there was the Star Trek experience in Vegas, but that's been long, long gone. So there's no physical entity to go off to. And as far as Riker goes, you have Will Riker that's so into family, right? And there is no mention whatsoever about him caring about his twin brother, copy, whatever you want to call Thomas. So I have an issue with that. It's literally you, dude. You go and you find him and you take care of him, that sort of stuff. And there's but no mention he, of that whatsoever. He may have some complex feelings about that considering his his brother, I'll use air quotes there, impersonated him, stole Starfleet property, defected to the Maquis, and was a war criminal. <laughs> I agree with all that, but <laughs> then there is a tremendous parallel with the TNG episode family, where Jean-Luc goes back and he has it out with Renee in the vineyard, and they're okay after that. They might not still like each other completely, but they're okay at that point, and you don't ever get Will okay with Thomas. And so... I could go on and on about this. But Honestly, that's not I the think Thomas is discussion. dead. Which would be fine yeah. Then acknowledge that he's dead. I would be fine with that. And Will saying, oh, I regret I never where, had where, an, a chance where, to reconnect where they, with him. Where do they fit it in so that it feels organic in this season? Because that's the problem we have with a lot of things is there's a bunch of stuff tacked on. You're like, okay, it's cool to know, but it doesn't really feel organic. And I understand <laughs> you have a lot of passion for Thomas Riker, but I don't think there's as many fans that have that same passion as you. Everyone well, okay. has their favorite character. But but if you're saying where to put it in, it's pretty easy in the episodes where he is dealing with the whole level of existence and death for his son. The same could be said about his brother. So, yeah, if okay. we have the feeling that he has that true kinship relationship with him, and I'm not sure that that exists. I've, I've been talking way too much. and I know you guys have a lot to say. <laughs> the last thing I, I will say is Star Trek Legacy yeah, I would like to see it. Sure, I would like to see it if it's done well, if it's done in the genre of Strange New Worlds, where it's fun, it's in so, the universe, and it's well-written. I would like to see that. That's not the show that Terry described for Legacy. Yeah. Terry uh, described Legacy as a way to fill in more of those gaps of things that has happened with people, uh, which is what a lot of people were clamoring for. A lot of people were upset that there was pretty much no mention of Deep Space Nine other than a veiled reference to Odo in Picard Season 3. Uh, Meanwhile... Who was on the front lines of the Dominion War and dealt the most changelings? These so, nine crew. So just, just to something. inject here about Legacy, uh, I think it's a terrible idea. And and I will not recycle this when I get to my points of discussion. But I think that, that that would be one of the stupidest things that they could do is they come back. And we have had fans clamoring forever to continue the Voyager era or or continue the Dia, the classic era. That is what everybody has said through all of the new Trek, and they finally did it. 
and they overdid the nostalgia and they, they did all of this stuff and they give people what they want, which is a continuation. And then they jump back to fill in the gaps. I, no, I no, no, I, no, no, no. Legacy fills in those gaps in current day from what Terry had oh, said, not going back in time. Oh, but it's the continuing said- story that then fills in gaps we've gotten from those shows and gaps that came up on that. Why I don't think we're getting another okay. Strange New Worlds tone show is they already have their weekly adventure show. You don't need to duplicate that same tone. Yeah, There's I people that are going to watch Strange New Worlds because of that tone. There's also people that want that canon slash lore dump that would be Star Trek Legacy. And maybe you make it a short limited series that's one or two seasons. But th- that's more what he intended Legacy uh, to be if they got it was continuing stories that were told, but then filling in those gaps. So maybe we find out whether Cisco ever came out of the wormhole or not. Maybe we get to check in and see whether Janeway is still an admiral in Starfleet, which, spoiler alert, they wanted to try and have her. They just didn't have the budget to have Admiral Janeway be the one that promoted Seven of Nine. So they used Tim Russ, who they'd already brought on board for an episode. Okay, so I was really worried when you said go back because I I hated the idea of of going back. And when they talked about possibly bringing back Shaw, that's where my mind went. So, okay, that's good. Go ahead, SB. I have one last controversial statement to make. And that is if they do a Star Trek legacy show for the love of all that Star Trek, do not let Terry Metalis helmet. Do not. There were so many things wrong with Star Trek Picard season three. I don't want that perpetrated. I don't want it continued. I think it needs to be given to somebody that could tell a good story from front to end and not have dangling crap out there. I don't think there was that much dangling in comparison to other oh, stuff. Oh, you want me there, to go through the list? I can. <laughs> yes, there is. Uh, I think that we're, and I think it's the nature of being a fan of things like this, which kind of gets me into it. Is th- this show was fan service the show, and it was a feel good thing. It's not like it's the the greatest thing ever written, like some people are trying to claim, but it's fun and it tickles that nostalgia bone. And you go, oh man, I can't wait! I, I can't wait to see the Enterprise D again. And they serve it up, things like that. And we got some lore dumps in there. The story wasn't exactly that complex. I feel that it was stretched out, but I had fun watching it. Uh, it's not like it's going to go and win all sorts of awards for quality television. And don't take this as me dumping at it, but I'm saying quality television, like in the vein of Breaking Bad, where almost every episode is perfect and it's considered genre breaking and tons of top actors and stuff involved in it. This is a Trek series that's really fun, fills in a bunch of gaps for fans before, and arguably deletes Picard season two for everyone's existence because. That's what a lot of season three felt like to me is that Terry Madalus was kind of on board for, I think the first episode and the last episode of season two before he went off to work season three. And this felt more like, Oh, people didn't like that. Let's just kind of undo it. And we'll keep Rafi and we'll keep seven and no one else will really even get a mention. Like Eleanor was on the Excelsior. We knew in season two, it got blown up. The only reason we know he's still alive is someone asked Terry on Twitter, Hey, what happened to Eleanor? And he's like, he wasn't on the ship. So, there's there's a lot they had to cover there in order to do the nostalgia side of things. And I think the fact that we kind of forgot season two was a disservice to certain characters like Loris that I found interesting, who just kind of disappeared. <laughs> and we're like, we're like, well, one year later, did Picard ever go meet her there? She's still waiting in the bar for her. And I'm assuming not because they keep referring to him as Admiral Picard with an implication. He's not retired anymore. So that was one of the things that kind of miffed me. Oh, look, here's my takeaway from it. It's a fun show. Am I going to watch it again? Bits and pieces of it, maybe, because I love starships and Star Trek. I got ship porn out the wazoo when it came to this this show. I got to see Ross class ships, 
Excels, the new Excelsior, the Neo Constitution, the Galaxy class, the Defiant class, all sorts of stuff there. I went, okay, that was fun. And I enjoyed looking through the fleet and seeing what ships were there. I enjoyed seeing the fleet museum, but it, it's not like it was a story that had to be told, but it was a story that it was fun that they told. And arguably they've closed the gap on it. You may have some of these characters appear in future stuff. I know Brent Spiner had already said he would be interested in revisiting the role of data and some animated stuff too, if that was available to him, which sort of makes sense. But we've got the epilogue to next gen now. We don't have to go back down that path. Maybe we get some appearances. Maybe we don't. It was it was fun. Is it going to be something that I consider one of my top shows of all time? No. And I think people that are saying it's one of their top shows of all time are dealing with a lot of recency bias and a lot of nostalgia coming into play for them. And that's fine. Enjoy things. You can like them. But I, I don't think that you put this on par with other sci-fi epics like, say, Battlestar Galactica or things the like expanse. that. The Expanse. The Expanse. Things that I think, and I don't mean this to sound demeaning, and it does, a bit of a higher quality because I feel like the stories told there were better because it was, this is going to sound demeaning, and I don't mean it to. The stories were just better because I think they were better planned out and they were not meant to trigger, hey, here's this cool moment that if you remember TNG, you're really going to like. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly valid kind of entertainment. But much like we talk about popcorn movies, it's kind of a popcorn show. And that's fine. Have fun with it. But don't treat it like it's the end-all, be-all. Okay, so I think you talked about your overall thoughts. I think you alluded to your low light. Uh, what do you think the number one highlight was for, for you from the series? Oh, I fully admit that got me with the nostalgia. It was seeing the Enterprise D, the bridge back again, getting to see the tour they did of the bridge on like the ready room, the fact they put the bridge on Google Maps so that you could walk around on the bridge and then getting to see the Enterprise D get a proper send off because the Enterprise D got screwed in generations. The whole reason the Enterprise D got blown up was because they realized, ooh, this set we built for TV doesn't work very well, really very well on film. It's why the lights are always really dim on the bridge in Star Trek Generations <laughs> because the way the set was set up for movies, it didn't translate well. So they blew it up and built one that would translate to movies, which was fine. But the Enterprise D went out like a chump. Now the Enterprise D got the ending it deserved. And as someone who's everyone has their Enterprise, Enterprise D is my Enterprise. That's the Enterprise I grew up with. It got its proper send off. And I loved it. I love that. OK, and I want you to express on here because we've talked a little offline about this. Express your thoughts about the Enterprise G. Because I, I like I mean, your thoughts about him. I sort of touched on it and I'm probably not remembering what I said because I had diary of the mouth when I was running off, <laughs> running off about it. But D does your, I think your, I your PP plan help with that? Oh, wait, wrong one. Sorry. Yeah, I think I touched on it a bit when SP was talking, but I feel like the Enterprise G, it was meant to make you, oh, cool, that's the Enterprise. But I don't think it needed to happen because they made a point of saying, hey, this is the Titan A at the very beginning of the show. This is the successor to Will Riker's Titan, which we never got to see on screen until, Pro not Prodigy, until Lower Decks. But Will was off doing adventures on the Titan with Deanna and his own crew and had created a legacy of its own. And it was cool that they went, okay, the Titan is of importance enough that we're going to build a Titan A now. And I thought that was great. And I felt like they washed that away by making it the Enterprise G. I, I understand why they wanted to put an Enterprise out there. I understand the argument you could make plot as to why they would do that but if you can rename 
the inner the Titan A to the Enterprise G and then say, well, a Titan B might show up. Why wouldn't you have just taken that ship that was going to be Titan B and make it Enterprise G? Yeah. Uh, for the audio listener, uh, SP is holding up the Star Trek The Next Generation technical manual. Yeah, from the D, not the G. I know you guys have gone on to the G, but the copyright on this, the publishing date on this was 1991. And there was a couple tweets from the crew saying this is actually still in print. So yeah. you can get a version of this. Uh, Chris, I think you also have a copy of this laying around somewhere, don't you? There's another one that also has a blue cover that's that exact same size. And I can't remember what that one is, but I have a copy of both of them. And I greatly enjoy any time the Okudas talk about their experience on the original Next Gen building the bridge. And it was fascinating seeing Michael Okuda talk about how they recreated the Enterprise D bridge. And if you get a chance, I don't watch the Ready Room stuff very often on Paramount Plus. They put it on YouTube also, where Michael Okuda walks the bridge with Will Wheaton and they talk about some of the effort that went in to rebuild the bridge from scratch. Because the only thing that is there from an old set is the dedication plaque. It's just fascinating, especially when they get into, well, we had to figure out how to do the lighting on the tactical arch. And back in the day, we couldn't fit regular bulbs in there. So there was neon bulbs in there. So we had to tune the LEDs inside here now to look like they had the same over intense glow that those neon bulbs had <laughs> behind it because we wanted it to look the same, even though we could do it much more efficiently now. Just fascinating stuff in the labor of love that was the reconstruction of the Enterprise D bridge. And they did say they kept the bridge. So I'm very curious what they're going to do with that set. Considering we know they trashed the old one and that's why there was a Kickstarter for the restore the Enterprise D bridge. And that's actually in a <gasps> museum now, the one that was there. I, I did. I, okay. I'll, I'll get to my actual points in a little bit here, but I didn't really want to see, you know, Riker or anything come back again, but I will, I will give one time pass here for a, a Riker and a Troy thing to come back. And what it is, is they walk out the doors, continuing the conversation they had at the end of the enterprise series. And then they walk onto the bridge and, and, and somehow they set up the idea that the enterprise finale was wrong. It was just like, oh, wait, wait, you didn't know that was a work of fiction. And then they kick off the uh, the return of the Enterprise series. There we go. So there's a lot of people that started <laughs> talking about the fact of, hey, if they want to do Star Trek Picard, why can't they do Star Trek Archer and tell some more of those stories? Because for those that are unaware, there were plans for a fifth season of Enterprise. Yeah. They just didn't get it. That's why we saw the NX-01 refit in the Starfleet Museum. And they made it canon what the plans were for changing the NX-01 Enterprise, which Kudos to them also. That was a great little Easter egg for people that are Trek fans. The show's littered with great Easter eggs. But remember, Easter eggs don't make a great show. <laughs> Again, that sounds like I'm ripping on the show. I'm just saying that just because there's a lot of Easter eggs, that doesn't automatically make it great. That's okay. You can you cannot rip on it because I'm just about to. Um, no, that's I, fair. I, I, I have to say, I was asked in our Discord, so someone said something to the effect of, I am, it, it's too bad you're not, you couldn't enjoy the series, Stephen. And that took uh, took me back for a minute. I had to pause and think, is my criticism to the level that I didn't enjoy it? And I would say overall, I did enjoy it from the perspective of it being giving me some stories that, that did give me some nostalgia I wanted, did continuing on a little bit about some of the TNG characters and the Picard. But it's enjoyable under a certain context to me because I think that they way overdid the nostalgia. 
I did go into this expecting them to have more of a plot like season one and I will say season two of Picard. I think that season one and season two of Picard overall didn't stick the landing. I think season three of Picard did stick the landing in the context of the series that it didn't really do a lot at the beginning as far as setting up a, a big running start. And season one and season two really did. They had these really great ideas, these really big things, and, and they just kind of fizzled out here. You didn't even get a big boom from the beginning. And so that's why I say in the context, it did stick the landing. Uh, I will rewatch this series at some point, knowing that my expectations were too high, thinking it would be in line with season one and season two of Picard. And I'll go as far as to say that if I was to do a TNG rewatch and go TNG uh, through through TNG, go through the movies and get to the point where it's like, I don't know that I want to watch Picard. I throw season three on there and skip one and two um, in, yeah. in, in the context of a TNG rewatch. Now, as far as the number one highlight goes, uh, I, I got to give it here to uh, Jerry Ryan overall. I think that even though she wasn't forefront, I think that overall she was the most consistent with with her dialogue with the the performances we we saw with her character i think that a lot of what we saw with the other characters didn't line up to their tng selves or even the things that we had established in season one and season two of picard i think that jerry ryan though did a really good job and i think that the scene out of the whole series that really sticks out to me is the is the one where jerry ryan's on the bridge talking to jack about voyager that that still sticks out yep. to me through the whole series and so I got to give Jerry Ryan overall the the highlight for this series to me, which I know is a minor part, but I think that she was just the, her with the seven character were very consistent. Um, so a question for you, since you brought her up. Yes. And this is going to be me tying another stuff. They mentioned at the end as they're taking off. Well, what are you going to say? What's your phrase? OK, Because remember, we have Picard with engage and make it so we have Pike with let's go. And I think Archer also used it. We've got um hit it. Spock with, go. I want this ship to go now, yeah. as we saw in the trailer, which was a nice little touch. What is her phrase to tell them to go? I have my idea, but See, what are your guys' ideas? I, I hated that moment. I'll be I honest. It was funny. I, I hated the moment because I don't know why we've put this big hang-up on this. This never was a hang-up. This was never a big thing that was made. Voyager, Janeway said the same thing. She said engage. We saw engage on many different random vessels along the way. I don't know why we made this go phrase unique. It, it was, I think it was a wink and a nod to the fandom that kind of was enjoying that aspect. But we've, we've had this though with new track. We had that with discovery. It was a big thing. What are they going to say? The hit it thing or the punch it thing or whatever came up from discovery with the Pike character. I don't know why we had to have that scene. I would just like it. If people would just start saying something casual, maybe it is engaged with the occasional hit it or, or, or whatever. I don't know why it's a big thing. Personally, I want it to be Engage. I thought it was Proceed. <laughs> she used it all the time in Voyager. <laughs> oh, end that's of good. line. Oh, end, end of, of line. line. Good too. Because she was part Borg. Yeah, yeah. And, and I will say with Seven's character, if they do get to do the legacy show, I think there's a lot more that can be mined from the fact that these kids that were all assimilated are going to be really freaking traumatized, oh especially the crew that's on there. And who's someone that can understand what that feeling is like? Yep. Seven. But still, I, I actually, a bigger universe discussion had, had this with somebody there, that this whole thing changes so much when it comes oh, to, yeah. to, to Trek, because you have in this series, the Cisco plot rehashed. You, you have that with Shaw. 
You have this. No. The, okay. The, Sorry. The, I, I was thinking. I was thinking. How, when did the emissary no, come into play? No, I'm very confused. You have the whole the whole premiere thing from from yeah. from DS9 with Shaw, and as fans were like, "Come on, understand. We get it. We get it." But in universe, it makes sense there'd be people that were mad. And now you have half half the people out there, many of which are the descendants of of the people who maybe were angry, having to face the reality that all of these people did some really crappy things while they were, uh, you know, assimilated. So it kind of shifts the universe and, and almost maybe closes that in the future that we don't have to revisit this for a third time. But the thing is, it's all the younger generation that happened to the Wolf 359 veterans that survived and got older. It's. To steal a, to steal what became a meme from GTA. Oh, blank! Here we go again. Yeah, because they're living that life again. So the trauma's back for them, plus the people that survived it. I think it's an interesting point of how do you deal with the fact that pretty much all of your younger officer corps of Starfleet is incredibly traumatized and likely has PTSD right now. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that there needs to be, and I said it on the other podcast I was on. I think there needs to be massive amounts of counseling given to the entire generation that were 25 and under and subjected to this whole thing. There's massive amount of loss of life and ships. It is a rehash of Wolf 359. This is as big of an event as Wolf 359 was, best of both worlds. Arguably worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially since it was right there at Earth, right? I mean, so, how, how many personnel were on Stardock? Yeah, Space Dock. Yeah, Space that Dock, was sorry. That was another question I had in, in the podcast and my other co-host corrected me. I said, yeah, Space Dock is firing back. They're battling. Aren't there ensigns on Space Dock? Yes, there were. But the crew on Space Dock were just like the crew on the Excelsior and the Titan. And they were able to at least fight back the Borgified uh, young ensigns that were oh, out there. That's a very nice, large assumption that was made to justify that. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> but I, so I have an issue with the mass amounts of young people that were turned to the bad. It's kind of like a Hydra moment over in mm. the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I have an issue with going back to the Borg where there's so many other good villains out there. I, I There was a lot of writing choices that I had issues with it. And it wasn't until episode eight or nine that I had to stand back and go, okay, You've gone through this with the wrong expectations, just like you, Stephen, wrong mm-hmm. expectations, and that you just needed to take it as nostalgia and fan service. And once I said that, I'm like, okay, I'm going to enjoy this for what it is. And I'm glad I made that decision because episode 10 was fun watching it with that mindset where you had data flying the Enterprise D through the Borg ship, just like Star Wars with the Death Star and everything. And you had... Troy doing the the excellent save moment where she she piloted the Enterprise, didn't crash it, yeah, and and was able to pick up everybody on the way out. I think actually they lost something that they set up early in the season where Sydney LaForge said her name was Crash and she crashed two ships. Yeah. And then Deanna Troy has also crashed two <laughs> ships. And and I realized Marina Sirtis just like uh, Beverly Crusher, they they just they Gates McFadden, they wanted their characters to not be remembered that way. So that's why they didn't go back to it. But you set it up. So let's take it, let's be creative in your writing and set it up in a way where Marina Sirtis with Deanna Troy actually is is now good for having crashed two ships. And she's learned from that. And that now she's a badass, just like Sydney LaForge is. The two of them had to have that moment and they didn't. It's because they set it up. Again, it's another thing that they set up and they never went back to. Uh, but 
once you realize that it's all fan service and nostalgia, getting to that final episode, you can have a lot of fun with it. Or you can hate the crap out of it if you've gone in with the wrong mindset. So that's why I started this whole thing off saying you got to go in with with nostalgia and fan service. You got to go in with that mindset. Well, and and for me, that is my number one highlight is is honestly the main plot and, and why I, or sorry, low light. That's my number one low light is the main plot. First off, the whole concept of Frontier Day is ridiculous, given the history of the universe. Throw all yes. your ships in one spot. That's stupid. Like, like, well, don't don't tell me that signed off on. That's ridiculous. Steven, the worst part of that was the MacGuffin of how do we get the Titan back under our control? Cloak it, because this is line of sight. <laughs> right. You gotta, right. You got to be crapping. Me right exactly. Here, <laughs> so, so that whole main concept with the multiple layers is the low light. It's like all the ships are automated. Really? We forgot all this other TNG history that says that that's a stupid idea and we do it. You, Does no one remember Battlestar Galactica? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you have these main plots that really fall apart very quickly. And, and that's the big low light to me of the whole thing. Oh, and, and we have this Zindi thing happen, yet our Earth defense is one thing. <laughs> we, we, we had some covenant well, and just the all- fleet that was there was under control that would have normally been at earth too but that's not unheard of go back to best of both worlds what was the fleet at earth it yeah. was space dock but the main it. the main defense is space dock like we didn't learn they, from, like that's stupid they had other they had other platforms but they were all taken out and it was off screen they didn't have the budget oh, to do the cgi so, of so that. we're now going to accept off screen stuff as canon because when we talked about it last podcast we didn't so Look, I, like i i don't i don't accept that there was no it's the pl- oh the plot just falls apart Give, so fast give them credit in babylon 5 they took the time to show the uh ship defenses around earth and them blowing up ships before they turned it on earth jms you're <laughs> the man b5 reboot please happen and i have to say overall though i i did think like they they kind of like i think they overdid the nostalgia at the suffering of the little plot things here and there. Like, I think there's a lot of character interactions that don't sound authentic because it's, they're leading towards a nostalgic area. Um, I think for me, that the highlight one being that the enterprise D is the big reveal. That's a huge reveal. Yet we have a bunch of nostalgia leading up to that point. I think they could have backed off the nostalgia a little bit in order for that reveal. But to me, it was completely ruined by the fact that, that Troy and Riker never mentioned Kestra. It's like, you know, it absolutely in, can, in universe makes 100% sense why they would have motivation to go, but they don't mention her. They, they Just one little acknowledgement of it. In fact, they take it an extra step and they go, John Luke, where you go, we go. No. And they name everybody but Kestra. <laughs> exactly. They name Sydney, yeah. Alessandra, Jack. They did not name Kestra. And that's sort of one of the more recent examples to me uh, of where I just found these little things throughout where it's like, we got this big nostalgic moment and the dialogue is going to suffer or the plot's going to suffer. And to me that there completely took out, out, out of it for me. Cause I'm like, Oh, this is great. I was really getting the feels about it. And, and I'm not lying. As soon as they said that, that took me out. I'm like, ah, you guys are really crappy parents. <laughs> let me ask you both you guys this. And I, I know Steven, you have other things to talk about, but let me ask you guys this. Do you think that all the TNG main characters had character progression in these 10 episodes? No. Well, no, because they weren't going to progress much in the 10 episodes, but they did in the intervening years. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's what probably yeah. what I mean. Do oh, you think then, that since the last time we've seen yes. them on screen, do you think they progressed? Yes, I yes. have. Yes. Well, aside okay. from Data, because he didn't have a lot 
be able to do in between there, but the nature of his change in this season yeah. caused him to progress. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think they all did. I think they all moved forward. I, I think Worf was the, the, the most hilarious yeah. along the lines, but yeah, hey, I think they all changed. I haven't seen this really discussed. I want to give a shout out though to Michael Dorn and Marita Sirtis because they played the couple interactions that Worf and Troy had in this way that really evoked that, yeah, they have a history like Troy's able to just rib him a little bit, but it's like they ended amicably, even though everybody knows that was a stupid plot. They played that like she's got some familiarity that she can really get under his skin and he's OK with it. And and I thought that there are a couple interactions played really well between the two. I thought that was the tr- the case. And I think it also showed how Worf kind of evolved when he was married to Jadzia, who would needle him like that. And that's still yeah. a sore point for me that they killed her and that there was literally no reference of Worf's wife at all or his son for that matter. But Worf always <laughs> abandons his son in Trek, so it doesn't really matter. That's true. That Maybe that's why Wesley only got one mention. Crusher took after Worf. <laughs> well, did you see Will Wheaton's reasoning for why yeah. he doesn't think that Wesley could appear in season three and meet no, Beverly I didn't. and Jack? Yeah, it was, this was pretty good. And this was good. He goes, this is what I did in a comic, but I don't know if the comic is canon, but he did write a comic was, which is when you become a traveler, basically you can go all over and you can change the path of history and things like that. So you basically kind of promise and make the pledge that you're not going to go interact with people you know because you can't oh. trust your judgment, which is why we don't see him interact with his brother, with his mother or any of the rest of the crew there because he can't. Similar, sort of the logic they had with the Ascended in Stargate, where they can't intervene, extended a little bit further, where not only can they not intervene for the people they know, they can't even go visit them. That's an interesting idea. I I could go with that. Yeah, and I liked Will Wheaton's explanation, but I don't know if that's canon or not. I like the explanation. My issue still stands. If you're going to retcon all of season two, you take away three big moments, three big Mm. characters. You take away the death of Q which was, do you cheapen it by bringing him back? I, I, you know, we can have that discussion. There was the Will Wheaton final moment as the Traveler. And then, uh, what was the other one? I can't remember the other one on top of my head. But there, there was three character moments that you now get rid of. And you can't go back to now yeah. because you basically retconned season two. I have an issue with that. Gerardi Borg. Devil's advocate here, the cue that we saw at the end of season three made a point of saying, you think so linearly. Time travel is a really messed up thing because a year ago we saw Q die in Star Trek Picard. That doesn't mean that that cue that we're meeting in season three is the cue that we saw die a year ago in our time. There's your write out. And it makes it makes sense. But there's also, to me, a degree of storytelling. And and yes, you can excuse that because it makes absolute sense. But then what was the purpose of the finale of season two? It was it was positioned to end the Q character to us, the audience. So we need to look at it this way, that this is much like what we saw with Rise of Skywalker deleted its predecessors right. movie, basically, or appearance. <laughs> There's not much that carried over from season two other than the fact that Rafi and Seven were a couple, may or may not be a couple now. It's left vague as what's going on between them, which is kind of weird if she's her first officer. Yeah, now, I don't we think won't that get can that. happen. Yeah. Uh, but, the the thing that I really, it's really bugging me is the Will Wheaton thing. Because say what you want about what happened with Will Wheaton and TNG. Wrong, I think, was done on both sides. And the ending for season two 
I think started to correct that. But then you bring back the TNG group and you don't say anything about Will whatsoever. It's uh, no, they I, did one thing. They did one thing. Deanna, Beverly made a point of saying she lost Wesley before and she didn't want to lose <laughs> Jack or something like that. Yeah, you got to remember I mean, for that's these a guys to Will for those for these guys in character. That's a wound that's kind of healed over twenty plus years. The fact that Wesley's gone, I don't think it would necessarily be as bothersome to those characters because they've had time to grow and heal as it is to the fans that have a bit different kind of investment in the character. I see the it, point you're making. If this was supposed to be see. fan service and nostalgia, you have to do something with Will, and they didn't. Now, well, maybe hopefully, he didn't want hopefully to. the plan is to do something with him later if there are some later stuff. Will's young enough that he can come back and reprise the role in mm-hmm. some other thing and not interact with the, the TNG crew if that's the thing. And I'd be fine with that, honestly. But it we, we just also, rubbed me the wrong way initially. We, we also don't know if anything was pitched to Will. He could have said, no, I feel like Wesley got the right send off he needed in season two. And I don't want to come back and do more. Who knows? Because yeah, they had know. to pitch some of these guys to come back. Not necessarily the characters we know, but right. when it came to some other people, do you want to reprise your role in Trek? It took a little needling. Like even it, there was talk that Avery Brooks might come want to come back and do something. And he'd been pretty steadfastly against it. And now supposedly has started to soften his view based off things on this. So there's some folks that just are ready to be done with the way their character was and to move on. And I think Will is probably pretty comfortable in his role now, which is he's an ambassador for Star Trek by doing the ready room show and being <laughs> talking about the brand with people and telling stories about his time there and people's times on set for all these other shows. I don't know. Steven, I completely derailed you. It's fine. What are your thoughts on the enterprise G? No, no, it's I, this is the conversation I wanted to have. And I don't care how long this episode goes. My kids can <laughs> eat later. Now I'll tell them they're uh, talking Star Trek. So, uh, so the, the enterprise G, the biggest thing that I, I didn't like about, well, there's many things I didn't like about it, but the biggest thing I didn't like is I feel like the scene leading up to it doesn't play with it being called the enterprise. Uh, and to me, I've watched that scene a few different times on the shuttle and there's a lot of dialogue that happens and emotion that happens that almost indicates it's more specific to the Picard character than the, the way they phrase it, which is to, in honor of you and your crew. And where I think it all falls apart is that you have, there's really two moments on the shuttle. You have uh, Jack pacing back and forth, like excessively pacing back and forth, saying, saying that he's nervous for this reveal basically is what happens. And then you have Jean-Luc, Jean-Luc Picard basically start to like break down almost when he sees what it is. And when you've got the Enterprise D, which had the Enterprise, the Enterprise A, B, C, D, and F before it, or sorry, F before the G, I should say, you have the G coming with all of this prior enterprises. And then in honor of you and your crew is talking about the D, which falls in the middle of all of that. It's weird because the enterprise is just a legacy name now in universe. And so it's like the enterprise name can't be dedicated to just one crew unless, you know, you could argue the first crew, which is the first enterprise, which is fine. But to, to be like, oh, this new enterprise is named after you and your crew from the D. It doesn't make sense to me. And Jack being super worried, it, it screams that something has gone, that, that he knows that this is something that, that Picard's really going to hate. And I think the idea of naming the ship the USS Picard was a better idea than the Enterprise. I get the fact that that traditionally we don't name 
ships after people who are alive or whatever, but it felt to me like it was more specific to Picard, the character than just the enterprise. And I really thought it was leading up towards being called the USS Picard. And I don't reconcile the name enterprise playing with that scene well at all. And I think the reason it went that way is because I saw an interview behind the scene that Terry Metallis said, Hey, Jerry, by the end of the series, you're going to be on the enterprise, but we got to write it. We got to figure out how to get there. And I think that as things started to be realized partway through that, Oh, we might not be able to get, get to build yet another ship. We're just going to go and just name this, the enterprise and, and just re re this the That's enterprise. So I think there was something about that that happened. So I, I don't, think that it worked i also by the way from a perspective there i think that that was a stupid promise i think that it would have been so much better because we know with discovery that there's a bunch of voyagers i think seven should have got a voyager i think that would have been fantastic but i think prodigy implied that janeway has the voyager a oh fair enough i haven't watched yeah, prodigy so that, that, okay that's what, the end of the end of uh this season of prodigy you see shuttlecrafts marked with voyager a and then the implication janeway says something about having a new ship and they go to a dock and you don't see what's in there, but the implication is it's Voyager A. Uh, so that's does, probably Janeway's. Does she take the field demotion to captain to helmet? <laughs> no, <laughs> she's doing some kind of like task force activities, basically, is how they spin it. Yeah. So anyways, that's my thoughts on the G. I, I really think that it was something didn't jive with the scene, with the way it was framed. Uh, I also have the same concerns with you about the Titan legacy. I think that that was a, a disservice to the Titan name. I personally, though, overall think that, yeah, lots of nostalgia feels to be had. I think that they sh could have dialed it back. And I wish that they had dialed it back a little bit. But, you know, I think on a second full watch with the lower expectations, I'll be more comfortable with it. If you guys get a chance, go see the story about how President Anton Chekhov got included. Oh, that's a wonderful story. Isn't it? Wonderful. I didn't know that Todd and Walter literally lived next to each other. Yeah. yeah. That was cool. For those that are, okay, I'll tell the story real quick. Yeah, I'd go ahead. You guys feel free to fill it's in. It's a great story. But uh, Terry Madelass and Todd Stashwick are friends or whatnot. And I guess it kind of came up that they were trying to figure out, man, I'd love to find a way to get more of these folks in there. And it was, well, Walter lives next door. You want to see if he wants to do a voiceover or something and be in Trek? So they literally knocked on his door, said, hey, we want to do something with you. Are you interested? And he went, Okay, and they went back and grabbed a bunch of audio gear and recorded the stuff over at Walter's house for that voiceover at the beginning to be Anton Chekhov. And I missed this Easter egg for Anton Chekhov. It was a nice little mm -hmm. Easter egg and call out to Anton Yelchin, who passed away, who was Chekhov in the uh, new in the uh, JJ Abrams. Yeah, yeah. I 100% agree. I think it was a, it was a nice nod. Um, I will say though that that again, I I hate to. To, to ruin the moment but that was another thing that i thought the dialogue was was sloppy on and where it was was it was back to the whole sydney laforge thing where we have to force in my dad would tell me this you're telling me that this mass broadcast going out to hundreds of people everybody where this is going this yeah, huge it's... communication everybody knows pavel chakov no not a freaking chance that's not the case at all the, the crew of the original Enterprise, Kirk's Enterprise and his crew are kind of billed to be legends within Starfleet. But that's that broadcast was going out beyond Starfleet. If you analyze right. the different codes on there, it was going everyone. It was going to everybody. And so you're telling me that this broadcast, which is saying stay away from Earth. So it's going to alien life and stuff. You have it saying my dad would say this. It's, Steven, it's, it's politician. Politicians say things to inspire in times of crisis. But but that's my 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 point is that there's this underarching 
uh, like this Sydney LaForge did it. My dad would be blah, 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 blah. It, it's unnecessary to call your lineage out. You're giving us fan service. We know when you're saying Anton Chekhov, we know that it's some form of descendant. We don't really need to know the specifics. So my dad was an accountant. You want me to do your taxes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a rocket scientist. It, right. Oh. Exactly. Exactly. But yeah. He, he's <laughs> using a quote that his father, who's a legend of Starfleet, said to inspire people in a time of crisis. I didn't really have as much of an issue with that as I did the name I, drop of a LaForge. I don't think you guys, he's a legend. I think that you get you get Kirk legend. You maybe get Spock because of the fact that he is he is such an old person, right? Like, you know, so he's going to his stories are going to travel everywhere and his history and, and everything. I don't think you get the likes of Sulu. I, I don't think you get Chekhov. I don't think maybe even Scotty are that notable through the universe. However, you do get McCoy's transporter fears right. realized in this <laughs> yes, whole thing. Yes, yes. So, anyways, uh, that's my thoughts on it all. I know I went on a little while as well. Uh, again, I, I, I know I, I sound like I'm poo-pooing because I kind of do. You guys, do you guys <laughs> want to hear a, a cool uh, continuity error that you guys might be able to explain away? Whatever, sure, but it's sure. still a continuity error. So, at the end when they get transported up in the Enterprise D and the Enterprise D flies away from the cube, cube blows up, the way party, the way team comes up the bridge and then you get the funny scene where Worf and uh, Data and Jordy are in the command chairs and Worf falls asleep. <laughs> but you also have Picard and Jack come out of the turbo lift and Jack has miraculously gotten all of the Borg stuff just taken off of him somehow. The only other person on the ship that could do it is Beverly Crusher, and she's manning the weapons. I wondered the same thing because it was such a big ordeal about removing it on every but, other Star Trek series. And right. I just point picture him on the turbo lift going. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that was the implication I thought because you could see like the markings on his face where the locutus like implant was clamped onto the side. That seems and like a Kent pretty... has a good. Pretty big risk. Kent's logic in the chat room. There's an EMH. All right, I'll yeah. go with it. I'll okay, with yeah, it. okay. And I also <laughs> thought of the thing where Data has transported him up, and he threw in the original uh, bio encoding in the transporter mm -hmm. to revert his body back. I thought of that too. So there are ways around it, but it's like, okay, let's explain this continuity because it's not the same as everything else. Okay, I have one question since we're talking about Borg. I know, I know, we're really long here. Was it just me or did the Borg prosthetics in general look cheaper compared to even in the 90s? Like they were all rubberized and, and, and whatnot in the 90s. But here it almost looked like Jack's wearing like, I don't know, a uh, bike armor or something like I mean, that. He basically had a Locutus armor on. So, OK, because I don't know. It just felt like whenever we've seen Borg in the past, whether it was TNG or Voyager, it always felt like, OK, yeah, that looks like, you know, it is it is. um electronics or circuitry into the person this looked like you know the borg were just wearing a suit i don't think i don't think jack's assimilation is quite the same as what we'd seen before with nanoprobes and stuff in previous things okay. just because literally like, she jacks him in the neck with something and then he's changed we don't see what happens in between like we saw in first contact like implants exploding out of out of uh, people's faces as nanoprobes did right. things so I don't know how they handled their assimilation, but we did sort of get that call back to the old style Borg when there were a few that were not yet consumed by the queen that attacked Riker and Worf. And that was more of the old school style implants and things like that. 
because I, I guess the implication there is that she consumed the other Borg to stay alive to get her vengeance and yeah. monologue. I mean, the, the real big thing is why the hell did the Borg Queen lower the shields to let the Enterprise D in? She could be like, yes, yeah, screw you guys. I'm leaving the shields up. <laughs> <laughs> it's the villain's got a monologue. Oh, plot issue? What? Beverly being able to take on the Borg cube, you know, throwing all the photon torpedoes and phasers, that was great. I got two quick last things to okay. say about this. First of all, Shaw, there has been such mm. an outwealth of support for Todd Stashwick and the character of Todd Shaw. The crew has now said, okay, there's a way to bring Todd back. And there's probably several ways to bring Captain Shaw back. Uh, would you want him back? And everybody's saying, yes, they would want him back. So if they do go forward... I could see Todd, Todd Stashwick as Captain Shaw being brought back into the universe, and I would be okay with that personally. And if you're going to bring back anybody else, why not Todd too, right? So I could definitely see that. At the end, we see the Enterprise D be decommissioned a year later. That implies that the D was in service for an entire year and they were an active starship in the quadrant because everybody else was getting repaired and all that stuff. Yeah. So there is a whole year of legacy DTNG crew adventures out there being ready to told. I, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's really cool, especially that, you know, LaForge was rebuilding something to sit in a museum and he totally made it completely operational to the fact that it could be put in service and, and fight a Borg cube and then yeah, have another year so, of service, which is really cool that he did that to sit in a museum. So that happening ruined one of my arguments that people were making, which is, well, they went, why'd they go get the Enterprise D? They could have, you know, taken the small ship that was designed to fight the Borg and run with a limited crew called the USS Defiant, you know, formerly the USS Sao Paulo, but neither here nor there. <laughs> but why didn't they take that? And I, and my, my thought at the time was, well, it's a museum piece. Just because it's in a museum doesn't necessarily mean it's an operational ship. Now, maybe you explain it away by being like, hey, the Enterprise D's a labor of love for Jordy. He wanted to bring it back to as close as it was before. And maybe he didn't have plans for it to be just a museum piece that sits there. Maybe it was supposed to be a traveling piece or something. I don't know. I'm sure there's some kind of canon in universe reason that can explain it away. But yeah, it kind of makes you go, hey. <laughs> You know what? No. LaForge, when he first comes on the show, he's very bitter and he's very jaded. Maybe he was actually restoring it so that he could become a villain and like fight Starfleet or something. <laughs> he just needs a goatee. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the thing that gets leads me to the fact that this is possible is remember, Picard thinks he can talk his way out of everything. Matter of fact, they were on their way to be court-martialed. And he's like, yeah, we could negotiate our way out of this. <laughs> No, dude, you can't. You can't. You're going to be court-martialed. But he thinks there's a way out of it. And so I think he'd think that there's ways out of everything throughout the universe. All he needs is a way to get there. And that's what the Enterprise D turns into yeah. is a very expensive limo. It's a shuttle. I I'm just, yeah. you know. With some shields. It's very nice that that uh, somehow a high-ranking admiral had no idea that they were going to take, you know, as, as part of the prime directive take the, the Enterprise D off of the planet. Like, you know, Picard was genuinely surprised when he found out that it wasn't on the planet. Jordy was trying to keep it a secret from him. Number one. Number two, he was disconnected. He was retired. He was going to go fly away with Laris. No, what he was no, he, he wasn't retired when, but not when the D he, crashed. When the D crashed. And that's yeah. that's the thing. No. But but I I get that Jordy could keep it a secret for this long. But the way that Jordy goes, you can thank the prime directive. You're telling that 
that fact to a high-ranking admiral that should have pro- there, so, there's probably been another know. crash on a planet over so you the want you want me to explain years. it away <laughs> he probably just assumed they would recover and destroy it because Fair it was so mm. beat to hell and the thought was okay it was recovered because the prime directive said so and then Jordy took the initiative to return it to service and i did like the fact that you could see that the front edge of the saucer was still scorched to hell yeah, that, I was, cool. that was a nice touch that was nice i got two questions for you <laughs> on the Enterprise D, since not everything is functional, you think Riker and Picard are still rooming together? Yes, mm-hmm. probably not. Okay. And number two, <laughs> do you think Jordy put a fish in the captain's ready room? Oh, that's a good question. I Probably uh, not, but if you wanted to be a museum piece, maybe there was a holographic fish. In no. Oh, okay. I'm going to say real fish because he makes mention that he's got what bots or droids or whatever uh, drones. He's got, uh, I forget what he says going around. Let me loophole you. Okay. Enterprise D was not operational museum piece yet. He was still working on it. So why would you put the fish in there then? Because, uh, because, because why wouldn't you make it the first thing? It's, you know, it's an animal. It livens up the place. And then you, you have like a, a fish feeding drone or, or bot that dedicated to feeding the fish. So you kid, but that's actually a thing in the Mass Effect video games. Is you can have an aquarium and you have to remember to feed your fish or they die. Or you can spend 30,000 credits at some point to buy an artificial fish feeder. And I'm like, I'm buying the fish feeder every time. <laughs> I'm going real fish, real fish. And it's one of the first right. things he did. Man, Peter's going to be mad. Did the painting make it back to the captain's ready room? Oh, I never thought of that. That is such a good. That he I wants assume. To... I assume it will, but it probably had not yet because it was still in Picard's house. And as he... season three started, saying he was going to ship it to Jordy. And Laris stopped it, but now, well, oh, I love that callback. I never picked up on that till right now. That's cool. And then they literally recreated the painting in CGI, which was pretty great too. <laughs> All right. On that note, I think we have thoroughly discussed Picard. It's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the back and forth. I hope that the audience, you listeners and viewers enjoyed that as well. We'd love to know your thoughts. Feel free to get mad at me. It's fine. I, I've been get people have been getting mad at me for 10 weeks now in our Discord server. So uh, feel free to comment wherever. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, I do think it is worth a watch if you just go into the expectations that SP said. If you're going to do a rewatch, like I said, I personally think that it, you throw it on the list. And we'd love to have your comments, but maybe come to our Discord server because we do have the best geek community around over on the Gunna Geek Discord. You can check that out at gunnageek.com forward slash Discord. Please come there. Let us know your thoughts. You probably want to look in the spoiler chat because that's where a lot of the past conversation happened because so many people were talking week to week and that's the type of conversation we have. In the meantime, if you want to check out other podcasts, check out the uh, All Things Good and Nerdy podcast on the Gunna Geek Network where you can find Chris Farrell. Check out Legends of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well, which is an awesome Marvel show. And if you really, really want, you can check out me talking on Better Podcasting with SP. It's a podcast about podcasting. So for episode number 400, yes, we've reached 400 of the official Gunna Geek show. I'm Steven saying, woohoo, Picard is done. Lots of nostalgia. Try to have more fun than I did. I'm SP saying... A rocket launch and the end of TNG it was a fun show. I'm Chris. I can't wait to see the Enterprise H in about five years at this pace. <laughs> Which is the one from uh, the Enterprise series? J. The J. J. Oh, the J. All right. Well, thanks, it's everybody. Ugly. Bye. 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 Thanks 
for checking out another episode of the official gunageek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next show. 